people gathered underneath the cross, shouting and yelling at him. Jesus never did any harm to these people. All he showed to them in his entire life and ministry were love, peace, and kindness. In his final hours, Jesus uttered this unselfish prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is not asking for himself. He was concerned for the people res responsible for crucifying him, asking God to forgive them. If it would be you, or it would, if it would be me, I would probably be very terrified, shaking, and my prayer would probably be, God help me. But Jesus, instead of thinking of himself and his own needs, he was thinking of others. He prayed for our forgiveness, which is the man's greatest need. The first thing I've learned from this word is love. God loves us. Only God could love like this. In John 15 verse 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life to one's friends. Jesus never called his father to forgive sins. Jesus himself demonstrated he had power while on earth to forgive sins. In Luke 7, verse 48 says, Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins, and the Jewish people know, knew that. In Mark 2, verse 7 says, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? People just plain ignorant. They don't know what they are saying. They don't know what they are doing. So Jesus being God himself, he can forgive sins. But why? Why did he still ask the Father to forgive, to forgive them? It's the fulfillment of prophecy found in Isaiah 53.12. It says, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. At this time, Jesus is now telling that he is now the mediator, the intercessor, asking God the Father to forgive them. He is now acting as the high priest. In 1 Timothy verse 2, Timothy 2, verse 5 and 6 says, For there is one God 
and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Hebrews 4 verse 14 says, Therefore, since you have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. John 10 verse 9, I am, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. John 14 verse 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So it's very clear that God, Jesus Christ, is now the mediator, the intercessor, the high priest, the door, and the way, the only way. So we can go to the Father through him. There's no other way. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So what does the them refer to? Who's they for whom he prays? It's possible that he is referring to the soldiers who nailed him and put him to death on the cross. Or maybe Pilate who found Jesus innocent of the crimes, yet because of pressure from the Jewish leaders and fear of a riot gave the order to crucify him. Or the chief priests and scribes who were all behind crucifixion paid Judas for the betrayal, assigned false witnesses before the Sanhedrin. He stirred up the crowd to demand for Jesus' crucifixion. Or maybe the Pharisees or Sadducees who sought the discredit Jesus who first actively plot Jesus' death. Or it may be you and me or everyone, everybody. If we think about it, we are the real ones that sent Jesus to the cross. Our sins, our weaknesses, our transgressions, you can enumerate them, etc., etc., etc. You and I made the cross necessary. I repeat, you and I made the cross necessary. Jesus' prayer on the cross tells us that God has found a way to forgive us. God has found a way to forgive us. So Jesus prayed for all of us who put him on that cross. Father, forgive them. And so in closing, we should pray the prayer ourselves. Father, forgive us. Can we say that? Father, forgive us. Let us pray. Yes, Father, forgive us.
we really didn't know how deep is our transgression and how deep we have fallen apart from you. Now, Father, we come to realize the great love you have for us on the cross. We pray, Father, to forgive our sins to you. In the name of Jesus who died on the cross, we pray. Amen. Please all stand. Evening, church. The second last word of the cross is two thieves and Jesus in the middle. Luke 23:43. On a small hill outside the city of Jerusalem, great crowds had gathered to see three condemned criminals die. Nearby was a centurion of the Roman army with a squad of soldiers in charge of the execution. Here were members of the Sanhedrin and the chief priests who had condemned Jesus for blasphemy the night before. There were a few moments, a few women nearby, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and some other women who followed Jesus from Galilee. But we are not concerned with, that, with them now. Instead, we face two men nailed to crosses on their side and Jesus on a cross between 
them. The two men on either side of Jesus were condemned to death by crucifixion. Both of them will die before the sun goes down. Let us take a few moments to think about these two men nailed to crosses on either side of Jesus. Who were these two men? Translators use different words to describe them. Thieves, robbers, bandits. Beyond that, we know little else about them. We do not know their names. Somebody here know their names? No. Or either hometowns of the specific crime they committed. It appears that these two men are exactly alike. They both were criminals who were sentenced to die together at the same time, at the same place, on the same day. Both men were dying and both would soon be dead. No one could look at them and tell any difference, but in reality, no two men could be more different. These two men were crucified on the outer crosses, differed on one, man, one main point how they viewed the man in the middle. It is Jesus. They saw him differently and therefore asked him for different things. One man wanted escape, not forgiveness. The other man wanted forgive, forgiveness, not escape. Let's take a close look at the man who wanted forgiveness. Was any man ever in a more desperate situation, brutally crucified, he is dying in agony for crimes he had committed. He is a guilty man justly punished. He deserved to die and he knows it. By sundown, he will be dead. Now at the last moment, he makes one final appeal to Jesus. Jesus, he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Here we have the most amazing example of saving faith in all the Bible. Jesus is hanging next to him, a bloody mess, a sight awful to be behold, yet it is here amid the blood and gore that this man comes to faith. Somehow this thief saw Jesus bleeding and yet he believed in him. He is a crucified sinner, trusting in a crucified Savior. No man ever looked less like a king than Jesus did that day. Yet this man saw him as the reality was. This is made more amazing when you consider that this man had, had none of the advantages the disciples had. As far as we can tell, he never heard Jesus teaching by the seashore. He never saw Jesus heal the sick or raise the dead. And he knew nothing of Jesus. Great parables and never saw any of his miracles. This man missed all the outward sign of Jesus' kingship, yet he believed. He evidently knew nothing of the virgin birth the Old Testament prophecies, the conversion with Nicodemus of the raising of Lazarus just one week later, 
the coming miracles of the resurrection was unknown to him. Yet, there on the cross, he came to understand the heart of the gospel. In the crown, in the crucified Jesus, beaten, mocked, forsaken his life, blood ebbing away, this tip saw a king and another crown than the crown of thorns. Once crucified man, another crucified man, and believe in him that made the difference between heaven and hell. How do we know this tip was saved? We know we have saved by this answer Jesus gave in verse 43. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Woo! What a great promise. Amen? Jesus answered this request by giving him prom three promises. Number one, immediate salvation. Note the word, today. That's what Jesus said, today, not tomorrow, not later, not next year, not next month, not next week, but today. When we got saved, did Jesus tells us, okay, you will be saved next month. No, but today. Amen? Jesus put it first for emphasis, meaning this very day, the day of your crucifixion. Jesus told the thief that he was going to paradise that very day. Number two promise, personal salvation. Note the word with me. You will be with me. That's personal salvation. Same as when we accept Jesus Christ, you will be with me in paradise. The praise means to be with me in a very personal way. It is not you over here and me over there, over here, but you and me together side by side. Wherever Jesus was going, this tip would be right by his side. Sometimes we focus on details of heaven too much that we miss the big picture. Heaven is where Jesus is, and to be with him is to be in heaven. When we finally get to work Jesus, is we will be home for all eternity. And number three promise, heavenly salvation. Note the word paradise. Heavenly salvation is the crucial word. Scholars tells us that in original refer, referred to the walled gardens of the Persian king, as a uh, place of beauty, openness, and expressible blessedness. In uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. Heavenly salvation, which is with God's paradise. Amen. If we take these three promises together, we can see what a remarkable things Jesus is saying. He is promising that this thief who has lived his entire life in crime 
will upon his death be transferred to heaven where he will be in the personal presence of Jesus Christ, truly distinct, receive much more than he asked for. Like us, when we accept Jesus Christ, we accept more blessing, amen? Not only for our salvation, but for all our needs, amen? Hallelujah. From this, we take comfort as we bid farewell to our loved ones who die in the Lord. At the very moment a believer dies, he passes immediately into the personal presence of Jesus in heaven. When we die, we direct to Jesus in heaven. We will be with him in heaven. You know, when I, uh, when I courting my wife, when I got from her the three letters, yes, I thought I'm in heaven, but I'm wrong. Amen. <laughs> Heaven begins the moment we cross the narrow divide between this life and the next. Not 50 years after we die, or 150 years, or 1,500 years later, but today we have the word of Jesus on this. Amen? Today, not tomorrow, today. Remember that, church. As I read this story, I take from three, I take from it three lessons of hope and encouragement. Number one, it is, it is never too late to turn to Christ. As long as there is life and breath, as long as the heart still beats, the invitation for salvation through Jesus Christ still stands, like what it says in Revelation 3.20. It says here, listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, and open the door, I will come in to him and have dinner with him and he with me. Amen? Hallelujah. What a great promise. Number two, even the worst can be saved at the very last moment. I know that some people feel that they are too far gone in sin to ever be forgiven. Some feel so enslaved by their habits that they despair of ever being set free. Many people would be, would do anything to be forgiven, but they think that forgiveness is impossible. Let me put the matter uh, plainly. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed. It doesn't ever matter if you're broken the Ten Commandments, all of them one by one this week. It just doesn't matter. You can be saved right now. If this thief can be saved, anyone can be saved. If there's hope for him, there's hope for you, for us. If he can make into heaven, so can you, us too. If Jesus would, would take him, he'll certainly take you or take us. Amen? And number three, God has made salvation simple so that anyone can be saved. This thief was never baptized, never took the Lord's Supper, never went to church, never attended Sunday school, never gave his money, but he made it to heaven. This man could not fit a hand for the Savior for this hand we nailed to a cross. He could not run errands for the Lord for his feet were nailed to a cross. For this man... 
there was no way in but the mercy of God. He was forgiven and saved in one transforming moment. One man who was not in. Tapos na po. Ito na lang. To the earth was made live, live to heaven. All that God wants for us and all that he will accept is simple faith in his son, Jesus Christ. When we place our faith in Lord Jesus, in that very moment, we are saved and will be with him for all eternity when he takes us home. Friends, this promise of Christ today, you will be with me in paradise. We will be in paradise. So turn to him in repentance and in faith. Join that repentant tip in praying, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. A simple prayer that he bring him to heaven in Christ in paradise. And when you die, I don't want. On your last day, you will hear the, crowd, the words, truly, I say to you today, you will be in paradise. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your words and thank you for this day that we celebrate, that we um, take your promise, Lord, and because of your death in the cross, we'll be blessed. And thank you for all your things that you did for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand again. Myself, I belong to 
church. Um, good Friday, and as we'll find out, uh, it should also be a good Mother's Day, too, because um, uh, Good Friday is also should be Mother's Day, also. If you could please join me, um, John 19, verse 25 through 27. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From the time on, the disciple took her into his home. As the eyes of Jesus wandered over the multitude about him, one figure arrested his attention. At the foot of the cross stood his mother, supported by the disciple John. She could not endure to remain away from her, her son. And John, knowing that it, the end was near, had brought her again to the cross. In his dying hour, Christ remembered his mother. Looking into the grief-stricken face uh, and then the face upon John, he said to her, Woman, behold thy son. And then to John, Behold thy mother. John understood Christ's words and accepted the trust. He at once took Mary to his home and from that hour cared for her tenderly. If you can imagine um, uh, for a parent to see your child um, being beaten, um, suffering on the cross, and then if you were that child to see your mother. Um, you can see Jesus in his dying hour um, only cared about what others felt. And so um, that was especially true for his mother. Um, oh, pitiful, loving Savior, amid all his physical pain and mental anguish, he had thoughtful care for his mother. He had no money with which to provide for her comfort, but he, he was enshrined in the heart of John and he gave his mother to him as a precious legacy. Thus he provided for her that which she most needed, the tender sympathy of one who loved her because she loved Jesus. And in receiving her as a sacred trust, John was receiving a great blessing. She was a constant reminder of his beloved master. This is a perfect example of Christ's filial love shining forth with unlimited, undimmed luster in the midst of all ages. For nearly 30 years, Jesus, by his daily toll, had helped bear the burdens of his home. And now, even in his last agony, he remembers to provide for his sorrowing widowed mother. The same spirit will be seen in every, day, in every disciple of our Lord. Those who follow Christ will feel that it is part of their religion to respect and provide for their parents. From the heart where his, loving, where his love is cherished, Father and mother will never fit, fall off, fail of receiving a thoughtful care, tender sympathy. Um, and some takeaways from this verse. 
Although Jesus was being completely obedient and focused on God's will for the Father's glorification on the cross, he provided and cared for the people that loved him. This is a challenge for us as Christians. During our precious time we have on earth, while doing God's mission, we must trust that God will provide for our family and friends, namely himself. You can be seated. <laughs> Let's sing the old ragged cross. On a hill far away stood an old ragged cross. The church have you ever experienced to be betrayed or forsaken by someone dear to you painful isn't it after giving your best your care your love and your time to that person still he or she will abandon you imagine Jesus Christ he enters Jerusalem with these people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. They loved him. They adored him. For them, their Messiah arrived. They saw in their own eyes Christ's miracles. He healed sick people, fed thousands of them, freed demon-possessed people, bringing dead people to life. They saw it all. It is true. Hosanna in the highest. It is a day of celebration. And yet, they crucified him. Those people who shouted Hosanna are the same people who shouted crucify him. Those people who loved him, who adored him, are the people that mocked him, beat him, and spit on him. They 
despise Christ. I can only imagine Christ's suffering, but it will be dimly imagination compared to what he suffered from the cross. In Matthew chapter 27, verse, verse 46, it says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lema Sabachthani, that is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the peak of the, of the day, darkness surrounds that place. From 12 noon to 3 p.m., darkness covered the whole place. This was a symbol of God's judgment to the people who rejected Christ as the Savior and also to the sin which Jesus Christ bearing at that moment for us. In Amos chapter 8, verse 9 says, And on that day declared the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And still, the Lord Jesus Christ quoted Psalm 22, verse 1, when he cried out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, from saving me, from the words of my groaning? The question is, why would he cry this word? Because in his heart, Jesus Christ bore the indescribable curse of our sin. In that very hour, the wrath of God against our transgression was so heavy that darkness covered the place, and God the Father can't even look at his Son. Because God is holy, and he cannot overlook sin. Sin is detestable in his eyes. He punishes those who sin. We should be punished for, for our sins. We deserve to die in hell. And at this hour, this is the only time Jesus Christ cried out using God and not Father. Because at that time, God the Father can, can't look at him as a son because of the sin he bore for our sake. In those three hours when Jesus Christ felt that the Father forsook him, this is the truth. He paid the price. He settled our death. And he died for our sake. Jesus Christ satisfied the requirement for the sacrifice of sin. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much, O Lord. In the cross of God, while... You're, while you are in pain, Father God, you showed us, O oh Lord, how much you loved us, O oh Lord. You became the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. And because of that, Father, we can call you Abba, Father. Thank you, O Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for saving us, Father. Thank you, O Lord, that salvation is free. Thank you, O God, that you paid our sin, O God, on that cross, on that hill, O Lord, called Golgotha. Thank you, Father God. 
Refresh be your name, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John 19, verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. So when I was looking at this, I mean, I had to reflect, what is thirst, right? Why do people get thirsty? And um, extreme dehydration would be one of them. So if we quickly glance on the verse, it's very easy to see that Jesus was in extreme agony, extreme suffering. So he got thirsty, right? So that would be the, the quick and broad view of what thirst is. So it's kind of ironic that the same man who promised the woman at the well living water is the thirsty one now, right? The living water that 
quenched the Israelites in the desert became the thirsty one at the cross. So that, that would be reason number one why people will get thirsty, right? This physical agony. And then if we look at what's the second reason on why people will, or why Jesus was thirsty is that uh, we have to look at scripture, right? So in the Old Testament, there were a couple of prophecies. One is in Psalm 22, 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And in the second one that we can look at on how Jesus fulfilled prophecy is in Psalm 69, 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And that's when the soldiers was getting a sponge, dipped it in sour wine, and then let them drink it. But we got to go beyond that, right? So those are the easy ones, right? Thirsty, and he's there to fulfill prophecy. But it's so amazing how God works. So let's go a little deeper and then go back into scripture. So one thing that I learned is that before you read a verse, you have to look at what happened before. Right? So what happened before was what Pastor Chris was mentioned, was Jesus was being forsaken. Right? So Jesus was being punished for our sins. And then a darkness that you can feel, not the typical darkness because of the absence of light, but the darkness that you can actually feel on your skin came. And that's actually God's presence in judgment form, right? Because we always associate God with light. But in some scripture in the Bible, you can see that God is represented in the dark. So when it was dark, right, Jesus was being punished for our sins. Hell was brought to Jerusalem at that moment. When the darkness left, light came out. So the immediate reaction is that, okay, God is not here in judgment form anymore. But the problem is that's when Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? Right? So the light was there, but God wasn't. So he didn't get the immediate sweet communion that he usually has with God, even though there was light. So it's also a reminder to us that hell is the absence of God. God came down, but in hell, God is not around. So I I really think that Jesus was thirsting for God's presence at that moment, and that's why he said he thirsts. So if we look at Hosea 2.3, Otherwise, I will strip her naked, make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. And then if we look at Amos 8.11, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. So we're always reminded when we read the Bible, we have communion with God. So when we are not with the word, we don't have communion with God. And that's why we become thirsty. So this is the cup that he prayed to be taken away in the garden, as he knows that at that moment, God will forsake him. So if we look at Matthew 26, 39, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, it is possible, if it's possible, may this cup be taken away from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He became cursed 
He was away from God. He was thirsty for God's communion. In Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. So we can clearly see God's grace because he was willing to be cursed for us. But ultimately, there's always a promise, right? That's why there's a good news. Um, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. Because once you're a believer, you will always be in communion with God. You will always have his word next to you. You will be clinging into his word. So that's why we always read the Bible. And if we don't read the Bible, we don't feel good, right? Something's missing. And then ultimately at Revelation, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Revelation 7, 16 to 17. Nothing but the blood of Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the White as no no other found I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. One more time. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as no No water found I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. From the Bible, it's found in John chapter 19, starting from verse 28 to verse 30. We're going to be reading the sixth saying on the cross by Jesus. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine 
was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of high soap and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Folks, there are three words many times you and I like to hear. Those words are, It is finished. You know why? There's a sense of accomplishment. Think about this. Those of you who are graduating from college or from any kind of course, when you say, it is finished, you see that big grin in their face, right? Or if you're running a marathon out there and you finish at the very end, you can say, it is finished. Man, you just feel so good. Maybe you are being tortured by a long sermon, and afterwards, the pastor says at the end, and my last point, ooh, it's going to be finished soon, right? There's a sense of joy and jubilee. But there's also another side for this. There's also a sense of rejection. For those of you may be graduating, it's your last semester, and you know you failed that subject. You know what say? It's finished. I'm not going to graduate. Some of you may have not accomplished a certain project and it's being demanded for you and you haven't been able to give it. It is finished. Or maybe it's a marriage. Somebody says to you, honey, it's finished. You see the jubilee, but you also see the sorrow of the word, it is finished. So let me share with you, if you were one of the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of a sudden you hear Christ say, it is finished, what comes to your mind? You probably would say, that's it. All right. All the while I thought he would be our Messiah that will deliver Israel from all these tyrants. I guess I had to go back to fishing. In other words, that's it. However, you were a Pharisee. You would say, it is finished. Good, man. This guy who's creating all these problems, thank God finally he's out of the picture. You feel relieved. For Satan, he said, huh, we won the battle. You see, he came to the world, and the world thought that they would love him. He's a loser. He thinks that the battle has been lost because Christ has been put on the cross. So folks, let me share with you. That is not what it means. The word, it is finished, comes from a Greek word. Maybe you heard this over and over again. But I hope you will be reminded about this Greek word. It is a word that goes like this. Tetelestai. Tetelestai. It is a Greek word that means it is finished. It means when a servant comes to his master, he says, Master, tetelestai. I have accomplished the work you've done. And the master says, good job. To some, when he says it is finished, it means it's been paid. Thank God some of you probably are paying your bills whether it's your college bills, your car, or whatever, and all of a sudden you get this card that says, paid in full. That's what it means. It is finished. It's been paid. What needs to be accomplished has been done. And folks, when Christ said it is finished, what he was saying, it has been accomplished what needs to be done. So let me share with you what needs to be accomplished here so that you will be reminded. Let me share with you 
a few things about what it needs to be accomplished. Number one, it means that the payment for your sins and my sins that has to be paid for. Remember what the Bible tells us? If you sin, you will die. Doesn't matter who you are, whatever background you come from. God, God is no respecter of person. It has been paid. In other words, your sin has to be paid with death. And Christ said, let me pay it for you. It has been atoned for. And there's nothing you can add to what he did on the cross. The second thing it also means, when he said it's been finished, it means death has not been conquered. Because Christ's son is the coming. He says, with my death, I'm also accomplishing the fact that I have overcome death. And folks, you and I have, don't have to be afraid of death anymore. If you die, you know that the Savior that you put your trust in has not been resurrected. You have overcome it. It's been finished. Death has no longer have sting of over me. The third thing is this. Oh, the holies of holies. Remember that curtain that allows us to get in the holy presence of God? It has been torn. What does it mean? We sang about this. The veil has been torn. You know what it means? It means now because Christ has torn that veil, we can now go directly through God, through Jesus Christ. You and I have direct access to God because of Christ. Amen. It's been paid. The only way you can go before God in the past was through a priest once a year. But now because of Christ, you have direct access to God any moment, any time. Where do you get that? It's because of Christ there on the cross. What else? We no longer need sacrifices. Thank God, folks. If you and I were still in the Old Testament, every sin that you've done needed to be paid with some kind of sacrifice. And that's why Christ became the ultimate Lamb of God. That Lamb was so perfect that it was blameless. By the way, the word blameless also comes to the word, it is finished. When the priest would look at the, at the sacrifice, they would say, it's good enough to be sacrificed. Christ became that ultimate sacrifice to be paid for our sins. He became that lamb. That's why you and I no longer have to offer sacrifices. Aren't you glad that he made that and I can't add anything to that? Let me add you one more thing. Because of, he said it is finished, he's now saying the enmity between you and me, God considered us enemies. But while we are yet considered enemies, Christ died for your sins. Now God has accepted us through Christ. He said it's been paid. Now he no longer looks at you as enemies, but as children of God. And lastly, when he said it is finished, his death guarantees the fact that you and I have the assurance of salvation. It's been paid. Folks, you cannot add anything to what Christ has done on the cross. It is enough. It is finished. What I'm asking of you tonight is this. If you haven't known the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you realize Christ paid that ultimate price. It's been satisfied. It's been paid in full. And all you need to do is accept the gift of eternal life. You know what? It's hard for many people today because it takes a humble person to accept the fact that I can't save myself. We live in a very humanistic society thinking that we can accomplish it by good works. You cannot. It takes a humble person to say, thank you, Lord. You died in my place. And thank you. It's been paid. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we will remember this word, Tetelestai. 
but you paid the ultimate price for our sins. God, you are now satisfied because you provided the way out through your son. Help us to always be thankful that my sins have been paid with a very dear price. Lord, help us now to be able to live in such a way that we're always grateful for what you've done for us through Christ. And if there's anyone, Lord, he doesn't know Christ, we pray that they will say, Lord, I trust you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you that you paid the price. It's been finished. I know, Lord, we need to accept this. seven last word of Jesus Christ on the cross is found in Luke 23 46 let me start on verse 44 it was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. 
As you can see, the last word is words of intimacy. Surrender and trust. In general, we all have reliance and destination. When we were young, parents are our dependents. No matter how big or small a thing, we go home and entrust it to them. Our burden was more or less casted out. When we grew up, we became capable of shouldering some responsibility. We then began to realize many things not much we can do, except following the mainstream. We also realized we are not that reliable. So as time goes by, we sense that we do need a stronghold that we can shed our load and receive guidance and have a destination. We know it or not, we are in this trend. Our dependence determines the content of our life and our destination, its value and meaning. Everyone desires much abundance of his possessions. Many trust in their wealth, laboring so hard to save some for the next generation. Some trust in power to secure this generation and to cover future generations. And some like to build up good characters, the good inner virtues than external, rather than external wealth and fame, so that it can pass on to thousands of generations. It is very common to a lot of people in whose heart there is a noble mission to bring true, true, values, to the, true values to the future generations. Even now, a lot of parents are willing to suffer in exchange of the security of their children. But we wonder, what is the final destination? Continuation of this trend without knowing the end is very risky. In this passage, it is evident that Jesus has a mission. When it was accomplished, he then committed to the hands of his father, the sender. As for us, we walk in the historical stream, relying on the forefathers' teachings. The best we have is our comprehensive capability to guide our life, then add our life lessons to the next generation. Basically, it is a trial and learning process to gain insight in hope of getting better as time passes by. In essence, our success is relative to earlier generations. Not so for Jesus Christ. When he came, he had a clear mission from the invisible almighty God to show us his character. He also demonstrated the way to God. It was a completely different blueprint for the created. In contrast, our self-designed blueprint is so inadequate. We, the truth seekers, 
are like a mountain climber to make a new record. At the pinnacle, we realize there is another top much higher than this one. Even at the ultimate, we then find out there is a gap which cannot be filled between the highest mountain top and heaven. As a result, our value-seeking life becomes endless effort, yet no completion, working hard without assurance of the end. If this generation is lacking of the complete pleasure, how can we expect the next generation miraculously achieve the ultimate goal? But through the death of Jesus Christ, there's a new and living way accomplished. From that moment on, there are two choices for every human being. First, continue to rely on our own design to pursue perfection. Or two, trust in Jesus Christ to walk in his living way. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There was no give up of death, yet he was confident that mission was accomplished. He was in his 30s. To us, it was a short life, but it's not a matter of length. Life is a matter of value. When he finished his job, it is time to go back to the Father to enjoy the glory to the fullest. Through his death, he manifested the judgment of sinners. Because of his love, he was willing to take the punishment on our behalf. Our body in this world labors to make a living. Our heart is burdened in dealing with people. Neither one of these is our ultimate dependence. When we look up to Jesus, it is through his death that Father's love was bestowed upon us. We're self-dependent and wandered so for so many generations. This love brings comfort from above to the vanity life. When we completely trust in Jesus, we know that he is the Son of God in which all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. When we sense that self-centered pursuing is meaningless, we will be willing to turn to Jesus Christ. In him, our life has the new direction. It begins to have long-lasting pleasure. When we grow in Jesus Christ, we understand the Father's mission and are willing to be part of it. God-entered life brings value and meaning to us. When people see us, they will notice the life from above. One day, at any given moment, we will firmly dedicate our spirit into his hands to wait in expectation with the other sanctified for the imperishable inheritance. Let's pray. Father God, When it, comes to, when it comes time for us to let go of this life, help us do it with the same kind of faith and confidence that we see in Jesus. 
Lord, we love you. Thank you for our salvation and eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. This time, please stand. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for the price you paid, bearing all my sin and shame. In love you came and gave amazing grace. Thank you for this love, Lord. Thank you for the nail piercings. Wash me in your cleansing flow. Now all I know, your forgiveness and Darling of heaven, crucified, worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the